Welcome to My Favorite Theorem. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and here is your jet-lagged other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, and doing pretty well right now, but um, in a few hours, uh, when it's about 5 p.m. here, I think I will be suffering a bit. I just I'm, got back from Europe yesterday. I'm sure you will, but that, that's the whole trick, right? Just keep staying up. Just keep staying up. And in a couple of weeks, I'm off to I'm off to that part of the world, so I'll, I'll be I'll I'll be jet lagged for one of the ones we have coming up right after that. That should be fun. So we can we can I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll feel your pain soon enough, I'm sure. So um, yes, yeah. So today we are pleased to welcome James Tanton. Uh, James, why don't you introduce yourself and. Tell everyone about yourself. Well, hello. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is such a delight. Uh, so who am I? I'm James Tanton. I'm the mathematician at large for the Mathematical Association of America, mm -hmm. which is a title I'm very proud of. Uh, it's a title I never want to give up because who doesn't want to be a mathematician at large, wreaking havoc <laughs> wherever one step steps. <laughs> um, but my life is basically doing outreach um, in, in the world and promoting joyous thinking and doing of mathematics. Uh, I guess my background is somewhat strange. I, you can probably tell I have an accent. I grew up in Australia and I came to the US 30 years ago for my PhD, uh, which was grand. And I liked it so much, here I am 30 years later. Um, my career has been kind of strange. I, I was in the university world for you know, close to 10 years and then I decided that I was really interested in the state of mathematics education at all levels. And I decided to become a high school teacher. So I did that for 10 years. Mm. So now my life is actually working with teachers and college professors all across the globe, literally talking about, let's make the mathematics that our kids experience, at whatever level, level they're at, really, truly, uh, truly joyous and uplifting. Yeah, I've wondered what uh, mathematician at large entails. You know, I've seen seen that as your title. And so, yeah, it sounds like a pretty fun gig. So I was the uh, MAA mathematician in residence for, for a good long while. They're very kind to me off of that position. But then I'm married to a, a very famous geophysicist and my, my life is really to follow her career. So she was offered a position at ASU in Phoenix and uh, off we moved to Phoenix four years ago. So I said to the folks at the MAA, well, thanks so much. I guess I'm not your mathematician in residence anymore. And they said, won't you be a mathematician at large? And that's how that title came up. And of course, I so beautifully, graciously said yes, because that's spectacular. Yeah, that sounds like a Michael Pearson idea that he would just go, you know, no, no, we you really want it. we really want to keep you. So <laughs> it's so flattering. I'm so honored. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's great because, you know, actually, it's the work I was going to do in any case. I feel compelled to actually, sure. you know, bring bring Joyce Mathematics to the world. Right. OK, so the, this this podcast is about theorems. And uh, so so why don't you tell us what your favorite theorem is? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I don't actually have a theorem, even though I think it should be elevated to the status of one. So I want to talk about Sperner's lemma. Okay. So a lemma means like an auxiliary result, so a result that people use to get to other big ideas. But you know what? I think it's charming in and of itself. So Sperner's lemma. So let's, let's see. So this was uh, invented slash discovered uh, back in the 1920s by a German mathematician by the name of Manuel Sperner, who was uh, playing with some uh, some cognitive thinking in Euclidean geometry and came up with this, this little result. So... Um, let me, let me describe it to you in one way first, not, not the way he did it, because then I can actually explain the proof as well of the result. So imagine you have a big rubber ball, and it's just a you know, it's nice, clean rubber surface, and you've got a marker. So I'm going to suggest you just put dots all over the surface of that rubber ball, so lots of dots all over the place. Okay. And once you've done that to your satisfaction, start connecting pairs of dots with little line segments, whether be little circular arcs, and make triangles. So three dots connect together to make a triangle. And do that all over the surface of the sphere. Grand. So now you've got a triangulated sphere, a, tri a, a surface of a sphere completely covered with triangles. And each triangle for sure has only three dots on it, one on each corner. So no dots in the middle of the edges, please. Okay. All right, that's step one. Step two, just for kicks, go around and just label some of those dots with the letter A randomly. 
and do some other dots of the letter B randomly. Do some other dots of the letter C. Why not? Until each and every dot has a label of some kind, either A, B, or C. And then admire what you've done. And I, I claim that if you look, look at the various triangles you have, you have some you know, triangles that are labeled B, 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 and some that are labeled B, C, A, and some labeled B, B, A, and whatever. But if you find one triangle that is fully labeled A, B, C, I bet if you kept looking, you are guaranteed, in fact, I know you're guaranteed to find another triangle that's labeled A, B, C. That is, Spurn okay. Lemon says, on the surface of the sphere, if there's one fully labeled ABC triangle, then it's guaranteed to be at least another. Interesting. I don't think I knew that, or at least I don't know that formulation of Spurner's Lemma. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I said it that way, because I can actually now describe to you why that has to be true. Because doing this on the surface of the sphere is actually a bit easier than doing it on a plane. Mm -hmm. So I guess, so would you like to hear my little, little proof? Let's hear it, yeah. Sure. Of course, the answer has to be yes to that, I know. <laughs> so, so imagine that these really are um, uh, chambers, these triangles, are like each, each triangle is a room on this sort of a, this floor design on the surface of a sphere. So you're in an ABC room right now, and you've got three walls around you, an AB wall, a BC wall, and an AB wall. There's, no, well, the other one, AC wall, there we go. Mm -hmm. um, great. So I'm going to imagine some of these walls are actually doors. I'll say any edge that has an AB label on it is actually a, a door you can walk through. So you're in an ABC room, and you currently have one door you can walk through. So walk through it. They'll take you to another triangular room. Now, this triangle room has at least one AB edge on it, because you just walk through it. And that third vertex will either be an A, B, or a C. If it's a C, you're kind of stuck, because there's no other AB doors to walk through. In which case, you've just found another ABC room. Woohoo! done. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it's either A or B, then it gives you a second AB door to walk through. So walk through it. If they just keep walking through every AB door you come to, so either you'll get stuck, and in fact, the only place you could possibly get stuck is if there's only one AB door, in which case it was an ABC triangle, you found another ABC triangle. Or it has another door to walk through and you'll just keep going. Since there's only a finite number of triangles, you can't keep going on indefinitely, you must eventually get stuck. You must be stuck in an ABC room. So if you start in one ABC room, you'll be sure to be led to another. Okay, and you can't go back into the room that you started in? So now you picked us. Yeah, yeah. You, that was going to be my question, yeah. Could you possibly return to a room you previously visited? Yes, that's a subtlety there. So let's argue our way through that. The answer is no. So think about the first room that you possibly, re if you do revisit a room, think of the first room you re-enter. That means you must have gone through an AB door to get into it, sure. In fact, if you've gone through that room before, you must have already previously used that AB door to go into it and out of it. That is, you've used that AB door twice already. That is, the room you just came from was a previously re-entered, revisited room. So you argue, oh. oh, if I think this was the first room I visited twice, then the room you just came from, actually, no, you're wrong. It was that room that was you, you first visited twice. Oh, no, actually, the one before that was the one you first visited twice. Okay. There can be no first room you visited twice. And the only way out of that paradox is, there can be no room you visit twice. Okay. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. That, that's the sole yeah. part I get. That's the mind bendy part right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like I, I need a balloon right now <laughs> and a bunch of markers. It, you know, it's, it's actually fun to do it, it really is. But, but balloons are awkward. So so the, the usual way that Sperner's Lamb is presented, but I'll, if, I can't, I'll even not do it in the, the usual way. Sperner did it on a triangle. I'll do it on any polygon. So this time, this we can actually do with markers, and it's really loads of fun to actually do it. So just draw a great big polygon on a page, and then triangulate it. Just put, fill its interior with dots, and then draw these edges, so you've got all these triangles filling up this polygon. And randomly label those dots A, B, or C, so random haphazard way. 
but just make sure that you have an odd number of AB doors on the outside edge of that polygon. Because then, if you do that, no matter what you do, you cannot escape creating somewhere in the interior a fully labeled ABC triangle. And the reason is you just do this thing. Walk from the outside of the polygon through an AB door, an outside AB door, go along on a journey. If you get stuck, bingo, you're in an ABC triangle. Or you might be led out another AB door back to the big space again. But if you have an odd number of AB doors on the outside, you're guaranteed to have one, at least one of, the, one of those doors not leading the outside, meaning you've been stuck on the inside. That is, it's guaranteed to lead to an ABC triangle in the middle of the polygon. Okay, and this does require that you use all three, like, is it a requirement that you use all three letters? Or if I labeled everything A. Odd number of things, would that, I don't know if, I don't know if my question <laughs> makes sense yet. There's no, no rules on what you do, except for just on the outside, please give me an odd number of A, B doors. Okay. And there's nothing, nothing special about the letters A and B, of course I could do an odd number of B, C doors, or an odd number of A, C right. doors. Mm -hmm. What do you do on the interior? Up to you. Label them all A. I dare you, and you'll still find an ABC triangle. Okay. It's not crazy. Okay. So, why did Spurner? Why did Spurner care? Why does Spurner care? Well, he was just playing around with this geometry he was playing with. But then people realized, as one of your previous guests mentioned, the fabulous um, Francis Sue, that this leads to some topological results. For example, uh, the Brouwer fixed point theorem, which people care about, and you should listen to his podcast because he explains the graphics point theorem beautifully, absolutely yes, beautifully. Yes, and he, he did actually mention to us uh, in emails and stuff that he is quite fond of Spurner's Lemma also, so I'm sure mm -hmm. he'll be happy to listen to this episode. And in some cases, Spurner's Lemma is kind of special because people knew Brouwer's fixed point theorem before Spurner, but they have the very abstract, non-constructive proofs of it, you know, a fixed point when you crumple pieces of paper and throw it on top of themselves. Fixed points, yes, exist. You can, you can know that, but not know how to find them. Spurner's Lemma, if you think about it, you're actually giving you a way to possibly find those ABC triangles. Just start on the outside and follow paths in. So it gives you a kind of a hope of finding where those fixed points might actually lie. So it's a very sort of constructive type of thinking on a lot of these topological results that are proved sort of abstractly. Um, one thing that's, that's what Francis Sue did not mention was the Harry Ball theorem which I think is a lovely little application of, the, of Spurner's Lemma, which goes back to the spheres. What was the spheres in my mind is this was how I first thinking of Spurner's Lemma. Um, so I don't know if you know the hairy ball theorem. If you take a fuzzy ball, like a tennis ball, there was little, little furs, little you know, hairs, at, well, ideally at every possible point on the surface of the sphere, but that's not mm -hmm. physically possible. But you know, we can imagine in our mind's eye, we've got like an ultimately hairy ball. If you try to comb those hairs uh, flat tangent to the surface all the way around, well, maybe let them be a little bit of an angle or something like that. But as long as you don't do anything crazy, that you know, it's a nice, smooth, continuous vector field on the surface of the sphere. Just these hairs, you know, the close hairs go more or less the same direction. They only vary smoothly. Um, nothing, nothing abrupt's going on. Then you are forced to have a cowlick. That is one hair that sticks straight, straight up. Yes. That is, you're forced to have a you know a tangent vector a vector that's actually the zero vector. You can actually prove that with Spurner's lemma. And, and the way wow. you can do that, yeah, the way you can do that is, um, so choose one point like the North Pole, imagine you have a little magnet there, and you can imagine all the magnetic fields making these like two circular, you know, the magnetic field of a dipole, I'm sorry, I have to forget, forget my physics days. So you've got these natural lines associated with that magnet all over the sphere. So I suggest just triangulate the sphere, you know, just, just draw lots of little triangles all the way over it. And then at each vertex of the triangle, You've got your vector field, and you've got these hairy hairs all over the vector field. At any at any um, uh, point on a triangle, look at the direction that the hair is pointing compared to the direction of that magnetic field. 
And then actually you can label it either A, B, or C by doing as follows. You've basically got 360 degrees of possible direction, difference of direction between those two things. So if it's in one of the first, you know, zero to 120 degrees of counterclockwise motion, label it A. If it's between 120 to 240 mark, label it B. If it's between the 240 to 360 mark, label it C. Mm -hmm. There is a way to label that triangulation based on the directions of the hairs on the surface of the sphere. Bingo. So we just now prove that in any triangulation, um, you can argue that you arrange things at the, at the pole that you've got an ABC triangle, this little thing you can arrange. That means there have to be another ABC triangle somewhere on that sphere. That is, there's a little small region where you've got three hairs trying to point in three different directions. And do finer and finer triangulations, you actually argue. Mm -hmm. The only way out of that predicament is there's got to be one hair that's pointing, trying to point in three directions at the same time has to be the, the zero vector. That's very cool. Wow. Isn't that yeah. cool? I know. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I just love these. I mean, th these things feel so tangible. Like I want to just play with them with my hands and make it happen. And you, you can, to some degree, you know, try to comb a fuzzy ball. You'll you have a hard time. Or look at a guinea pig. They're basically fuzzy balls. They always have cowlicks. <laughs> always. Are there higher dimensional generalizations of this? So this is this feels very much two dimensional. But I, I feel there's an Euler characteristic lurking somewhere. So. Oh, absolutely. You can do this in higher yeah. dimensions. But yeah. this works in any dimension. For example, uh, to make this in three dimensions, just stack all these tetrahedra together. Mm -hmm. You know, make it take a polyhedron, um, triangulate it. If there's one A B C, if there's an odd number of A B C faces on the outside, then there's guaranteed mm -hmm. to be some A B C D triangle uh, tetrahedron in the middle, okay. and so on. All right. Higher dimensions. Yeah. And people, of course, played with all sorts of variations. Like, if, what if you had, uh, if I go back to two dimensions for a moment, back to triangles, if three different people create their own labeling scheme, so you've got three different, like, lots of ABC triangles around the place, then there's guaranteed one triangle in the middle. So if you chose one person's label for one vertex, the second person's label for the third vertex, second vertex, and the third person's label for the third vertex, according to their labels, which are all different, that's an ABC triangle in a sort of mixed labeling scheme. Mm -hmm. Those you know, they call these permutation results of Sperner's lemmas and so forth, which is just mind bendy too and high dimension. So, is this a love at first sight kind of theorem for you? What were your early experiences with it? So, when did I first encounter this? Um, so, I, you know, I guess when I was studying the Brow fixed point theorem, and when I saw this this lemma in and of itself, and I, see, I saw it in the light of proving Brow's fixed point theorem, it just appealed to me. It just seems okay. It felt hands on, which I kind of love. It felt immediately accessible. I could do it, experience, and play with it. And it seemed quirky. Um, I like the quirky. For some reason, it just appeals to me. So yes, it just appealed <laughs> to all my sensibilities. And I also had this thing I've discovered about me in my life is that I like, I like this notion that um, I'm I'm nothing in the universe. That the universe has these these dictates. For example, if there's one ABC triangle, there's got to be another one. I mean, that's a fact. It's a universal fact that despite my humanness, I can do nothing about it. You know, ABC triangles just exist. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and things like, uh, I mean, there's a famous wrap a rope, a rope around the earth puzzle. You know this one. If you take a rope, wrap it around the equator, mm -hmm. add 10 feet to the rope, rewrap. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got 19 inches of space. What I love about that puzzle, if you do that for Mars, add 10 feet to its equator, it's 19 inches of space. Do it for Jupiter, it's 19 inches of space. Do it for a planet the size of a pea, it's 19 inches. You cannot escape 19 inches. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that sort of thing appeals to me. What can I say? What can I say? So you are a physicist. <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> Don't tell me my first degree was actually theoretical physics. <laughs> so the other fun thing we do on this podcast is we ask our guests to pair their theorem or lemma in this case with something. So what have you chosen to pair Sperner's lemma with? You know, I'm going with a good old Aussie Pavlova. Okay. And I probably have I probably half offended have offended all the people from New Zealand because they claim it's their new Pavlova. But <laughs> but the Australians say it's theirs and I'll go with that since I'm an Aussie. And why do I choose that, you might ask? 
Sure. Yeah. Well, first, yeah. can we say what a pavlova oh, is? In case, yeah. So oh, I, I only learned what this was a couple of years ago. So I'm just assuming I was one of the lucky, you know, people who learned about this in making <laughs> one, which was delicious. So. Yeah. Excellent. Well, first of all, it's the most delectable dessert ever devised by mankind or invented or discovered. I'm not sure if desserts are invented or discovered. It's a good question. There. <laughs> um, so it's a great big mound of meringue. You just build this huge blob of meringue and mm -hmm. you bake it for this two hours and let it sit in the oven overnight. So it really becomes this hard, hard outer shell with a soft, gooey meringue center. And you just slather it with whipped cream and, and your favorite fresh fruits. And my, my favorite fresh fruits were pavlova, actually. Um, mango and blueberries together mm, so mm -hmm. that's that's my dessert but but you know that's what made me think of it was actually two reasons i have to know it was invented in the 1920s same time Sperner came up with this lemma which is kind of nice but every time i bake one i, I bake these things i really enjoy baking desserts um it kind of reminds me of a triangular sphere because you've got this literally this mound of meringue and you bring mm -hmm. it out of the oven it's got this crust that's all cracked up it kind of looks like a triangulation of a, of a of a polyhedron of some kind so you know it just had that sort of parallel to me that i like so you know, Pavlo is as much a joy in my life as, as you know, these quirky Spurnalemma type results are. So that's my pairing. And they're, they're not, they look, so I, I went to this Australia themed uh, potluck party a couple of years ago. And this is, <laughs> I decided to bring this because I was looking for Australia foods. And um, so I got this and I was pretty intimidated when I saw the pictures, but it's actually like, at least I just found a recipe that looked good and it worked the first time, more or less. So yeah, yeah, I it think is, you can handle it. Yeah, it is a showstopper. It's so easy to make. Don't tell anyone. So ridiculously easy, and, and yeah, it looks spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Meringues look like something, but they're. I mean, really, you just, you just have to be patient to to whip the the whites into something, and then that's it. Then it just kind of works. You get the knack, you're done. Yeah. You're done, it's and it kind of so works. Yeah, it kind of works. Yeah. You can't overcook it. You can undercook it, but then it's just you know a goopy, delicious mess. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So we also like to give our guests a chance to to plug various things. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're you're uh, excited to talk about the Global Math Project. Oh, of course, I'm going to talk about the Global Math Project. Yeah. Oh my goodness, you know when I mentioned I'm I'm kind of a man on a mission to bring joyous, uplifting mathematics to the world. I'm kind of trying to live up to those words, which is kind of scary. But let me just say something something marvelous, really, really marvelous and humbling happened last October. We brought a particular piece of mathematics to the world. A team of seven us, the Global Math Project team. Not knowing what's going to happen, it was all volunteer, all grassroots, you know, next to no funding. We're, we're terrible at raising funding, it turns out. But it really was <laughs> believing that teachers, when given the opportunity to have a real, joyous, genuine human um, conversation about genuine mathematics with their students, that's actually classroom-relevant mathematics. You know, classroom mathematics is a portal to the same mystery, delight, and intrigue, and wonder. They will. Teachers are our best advocates across the globe for espousing beautiful, joyous, uplifting mathematics. So we presented a piece of mathematics called Exploding Dots, and we invited teachers all around the globe to do that, to have just some experience on this one topic uh, with our students during Global Math Week last October, and they did. We had uh, teachers from 170 different countries and territories, all on their own accord, reach out to about 1.77 million students wow. just in one week. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And this is school-relevant mathematics. So we're doing it again. Why not? <laughs> so, okay. so we're going to go, so go for October this year, 10-10. Um, we chose that date because that's a universal date. No matter how you read it, it's the 10th of October. And we're going to go for 10 million students with the same story of exploding dots. So I invite you, please, go go look up Global Math Project. Go Google exploding dots. See what we're bringing to the world. And, you know, on its own accord, in the last number of months, we've now reached 4.6 million students across the globe. So 10 million students sounds outlandish, but you know what? 
we might actually do this. We might actually do this. And it's just letting the mathematics, the true joyous mathematics, just simply shine for itself, just get out of its way. And what? It happens. It happens. Math can speak for itself. Welcome yeah. to the Global Math Project. <laughs> we'll include that in the show notes for sure. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. In fact, so it, this is June that we're taping this and uh, recording taping. I'm dating myself. We're recording this in June. Uh, and um, so just this weekend, uh, Jim Prop had a very nice essay on his mathematical enchantments blogs about, uh, about exploding dots. And I had seen some things about it, so I, I, I knew a little bit about it. It's really very lovely and, as you say, relevant. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Jim. I was about to give yeah. a shout out to him so, as well because he wrote a beautiful piece in his uh, Mathematical Enchantments blog piece for June 2018. Worth having a look at. Absolutely. But what I love about this, I mean, it, it really just shows, um, I mean, exploring dots, it's the story of place value, as simple as that, but it really mm -hmm. connects with how we write numbers, what you're experiencing, you know, the early grades, K through two. It explains, if you think of this in one particular way, all the grade school with um, arithmetic algorithms one learns, goes through all of high school polynomial algebra, which is just a repeat of grade five, but no one tends to tell people that. Why stop at finite things, go to infinite things, you get through infinite series and so forth, and start getting quirky, you know, start playing with not just with 10-1 machines for base 10 and 2-1 machines for base 2, start playing with 3-2 machines and, and discover base 1.5, start playing with 2 negative 2 machines, uh, sorry, 2 negative 1 machines and discover base negative 2 and get into unsolved research questions. So here's this one simple little story, just play with dots and boxes, literally, it's like me playing with dots on a sphere, I seem mm -hmm. to be obsessed with dots in my life, um, can take you on a journey that goes from K through 5, through 8, through 12, through 16, and beyond, all in one astounding fell swoop. I mean, this is mathematics for you. Think deeply about elementary ideas, and, and it's, it's a, well, it's a portal to a universe of, of wonder. Uh, that's yeah. why we're all here, right? I mean, um, indeed, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So let's have the world see that. Let's have the world see that together. You know, staying with the, the young uns all the way up. All right. Well, this has been great fun. Um, I, 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 I knew Sperner's lemma. You know, it's sort of in the abstract, but I never, I never really thought about it too closely. So I'm glad I, I can now prove it. So thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. And, thank and, you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm gonna sit down and make sure you're, you're not pulling my leg about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the odd number of ABs is key here. I've, no, it is key. The odd number AB outside edges. That's yeah. right. That's, That's right. the key. Because right. you could walk yeah. in a door and then out a door, so pairs of them can cancel each other out. So if you're next right. to one, they'll play I mean, with I, I bet if I start drawing, I've been restraining myself from like going over here to the side. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sketches work so well on a podcast. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Right. No, yeah. absolutely play. In fact, that's what it, that's all mathematics should be, an invitation to play. So mm -hmm. go for mm -hmm. it. Great. Yeah, thanks a lot for being here. Oh, thanks, my James. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpkinnison.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.